0: Chapter Nine of the Vicar's Daughter. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording Dutton by Jules Harlech of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The Vicar's Daughter by George Macdonald. CHAPTER Nine, THE FOUNDLING REFOUND One evening, during this, my first visit to my home, we had gone to take tea with the widow of an old servant who lived in a cottage on the outskirts of the home farm. Connie and I in the pony carriage, and my father and mother on foot. It was quite dark when we returned, for the moon was late, connie and i got home first though we had a good round to make and the path across the field was but a third of the distance for my father and mother were lovers and sure to be late when left out by themselves when we arrived there was no one to take the pony and when i rung the bell no one answered i could not leave connie in the carriage to go and look so we waited and waited till we were getting very tired and glad indeed we were to hear the voices of my father and mother as they came through the shrubbery. My mother went to the rear to make inquiry and came back with the news that Theo was missing and that they had been searching for her in vain for nearly an hour. My father instantly called Wagtail and sent him after her. We then got Connie in, and laid her on the sofa, where I kept her company while the rest went in different directions, listening for what quarter would come the welcome voice of the dog. This was so long delayed, however, that my father began to get alarmed. At last he whistled very loud, and in a little while Wagtail came creeping to his feet, with his tail between his legs. No wag left in it clearly ashamed of himself my father was now thoroughly frightened and began questioning the household as to the latest knowledge of the child it then occurred to one of the servants to mention that a strange-looking woman had been seen about the place in the morning a tall dark woman with a gypsy look she had come begging, but my father's orders were so strict concerning such cases that nothing had been given her, and she had gone away in anger. As soon as he heard this, my father ordered his horse and told two of the men to get ready to accompany him. In the meantime he came to us in the little drawing-room, trying to look calm, but evidently in much perturbation. HE SAID HE HAD LITTLE DOUBT THE WOMAN HAD TAKEN HER. COULD IT BE HER MOTHER? SAID MY MOTHER. WHO CAN TELL? RETURNED MY FATHER. IT IS THE LESS LIKELY THAT THE DEED SEEMS TO HAVE BEEN PROMPTED BY REVENGE. IF SHE BE A GYPSY CHILD, SAID MY MOTHER. THE GYPSIES, INTERRUPTED MY FATHER, HAVE ALWAYS BEEN MORE GIVEN TO TAKING OTHER PEOPLE'S CHILDREN THAN FORSAKING THEIR OWN but one of them might have had reason for being ashamed of her child, and, dreading the severity of her family, might have abandoned it, with the intention of repossessing herself of it, and passing it off as the child of gentlefolks she had picked up. I don't know their habits and ways sufficiently, but, from what I have heard, that seems possible.' However, it is not so easy as it might have been once to succeed in such an attempt. If we should fail in finding her tonight, the police all over the country can be apprised of the fact in a few hours, and the thief can hardly escape. But if she should be the mother, suggested my mother, she will have to prove that, and then—what then? What then? returned my father and began pacing up and down the room, stopping now and then to listen for the horse's hooves. "'Would you have given her up?' persisted my mother. Still my father made no reply. He was evidently much agitated, more, I fancy, by my mother's question than by the present trouble.' he left the room and presently his whistle for wagtail pierced the still air a moment more and we heard them all ride out of the paved yard i had never known him to leave my mother without an answer before we who were left behind were in evil plight there was not a dry eye amongst the women i am certain while harry was in a flood of tears and charlie was bawling we could not send them to bed in such a state so we kept them with us in the drawing-room where they soon fell fast asleep one in an easy chair the other on a sheepskin mat connie lay quite still and my mother talked so sweetly and gently that she soon made me quiet too but i was haunted with the idea somehow I think I must have been wandering a little, for I was not well, that it was a child of my own that was lost out in the dark night, and that I could not anyhow reach her. I cannot explain the odd kind of feeling it was, as if a dream had wandered out of the region of sleep, and half possessed my waking brain. Every now and then my mother's voice would bring me back to my senses, and I would understand it all perfectly. But in a few moments I would be involved once more in a mazy search after my child. Perhaps, however, as it was by that time late, sleep had, if such a thing would be possible, invaded a part of my brain, leaving another part able to receive the impressions of the external about me. I can recall some of the things my mother said, one in particular. It is more absurd, she said, to trust God by halves than it is not to believe in Him at all. Your papa taught me that before one of you was born. When my mother said anything in the way of teaching us, which was not often, she would generally add, your papa taught me that as if she would take refuge from the assumption of teaching even her own girls. "'But we said a good deal of such assertion down to her modesty "'and the evidently inextricable blending of the thought of my father "'with every movement of her mental life. "'I remember quite well,' she went on, "'how he made that truth dawn upon me one night "'as we sat together beside the old mill. "'Ah, you don't remember the old mill. "'It was pulled down while Winnie was a mere baby.' No, mamma, I remember it perfectly, I said. Do you really? Well, we were sitting beside the mill one Sunday evening after service, for we always had a walk before going home from church. He would hardly think it now, but after preaching he was then always depressed, and the more eloquently he had spoken, the more he felt as if he had made it another failure at first i thought it came only from fatigue and wanted him to go home and rest but he would say he liked nature to come before supper for nature restored him by telling him that it was not of the slightest consequence if he had failed whereas his supper only made him feel that he would do better next time well that night you will easily believe he startled me when he said after sitting for some time silent ethel if that yellow hammer were to drop down dead now and god not care god would not be god any longer doubtless i showed myself something between puzzled and shocked for he proceeded with some haste to explain to me how he, what he had said was true whatever belongs to god is essential to god he said he is one pure clean essence of being to use our poor words to describe the indescribable nothing hangs about him that does not belong to him that he could part with and be nothing the worst still less is there anything he could part with and be the worst whatever belongs to him is of his own kind is part of himself so to speak therefore there is nothing indifferent to his character to be found in him and therefore when our lord says not a sparrow falls to the ground without our father that being a fact with regard to god must be an essential fact one namely without which he could be no god i understood him i thought but many a time since when a fresh light has broken in upon me i have thought i understood him then only for the first time i told him so once and he said he thought that would be the way forever with all truth we should never get to the bottom of any truth because it was a vital portion of all of truth which is god i had never heard so much philosophy from my mother before i believe she was led into it by her fear of the effect our anxiety about the child might have upon us with what had quieted her heart in the old time she sought now to quiet ours helping us to trust in the great love that never ceases to watch and she did make us quiet but the time glided so slowly past that it seemed immovable when twelve struck, we heard in the stillness every clock in the house, and it seemed as if they would never have done. My mother left the room and came back with three shawls, with which, having first laid Harry on the rug, she covered the boys and Dora, who also was by this time fast asleep, curled up at Connie's feet still the time went on and there was no sound of horses or anything to break the silence except the faint murmur which now and then the trees will make in the quietest night as if they were dreaming and talked in their sleep for the motion does not seem to pass beyond them but to swell up and die again in the heart of them this and the occasional cry of an owl was all that broke the silent flow of the undivided moments glacier-like flowing none can tell how we seldom spoke and at length the house within seemed possessed by the silence from without but we were all ear, one hungry ear whose famine was silence listening intently we were not so far from the high road but that on a night like this the penetrating sound of horses hoofs might reach us hence when my mother who was the keener of hearing than any of her daughters at length started up saying i hear them they're coming the doubt remained whether it might not be the sound of some night traveller hurrying along the high road that she had heard but when we also heard the sound of horses we knew they must belong to our company for, except the riders were within the gates, their noises could not have come nearer to the house. My mother hurried down to the hall. I would have stayed with Connie, but she begged me to go too, and come back as soon as I knew the result. So I followed my mother. As I descended the stairs, notwithstanding my anxiety, I could not help seeing what a picture lay before me, for I had learned already to regard things from the picturesque point of view the dim light of the low burning lamp on the forward bent heads of the listening anxious group of women my mother at the open door with the housekeeper and her maid and the men servants visible through the door in the moonlight below the first news that reached me was my father's shout the moment he rounded the sweep that brought him in sight of the house all right, she, here she is, he cried, and ere I could reach the stair to run up to Connie, Wagtail was jumping upon me and barking furiously. He rushed up before me with the scramble of twenty feet, licked Connie's face all over in spite of her efforts at self-defense, then rushed at Dora and the boys one after the other and woke them all up. HE WAS SATISFIED ENOUGH WITH HIMSELF NOW, HIS TAIL WAS DOING THE WAGGING OF FORTY. THERE WAS NO TUCKING OF IT AWAY NOW, NO DROOPING OF THE HEAD IN MUTE CONFESSION OF CONSCIOUS WORTHLESSNESS. HE WAS A DOG SELF-SATISFIED BECAUSE HIS MASTER WAS WELL-PLEASED WITH HIM. BUT HERE I AM TALKING ABOUT THE DOG AND FORGETTING WHAT WAS GOING ON BELOW. My father cantered up to the door, followed by the two men. My mother hurried to meet them, and then only saw the little lost lamb asleep in his bosom. He gave her up, and my mother ran in with her, while he dismounted and walked merrily but wearily up the stairs after her. The first thing he did was to quiet the dog, the next to sit down beside Connie, the third to say, thank God, and the next, God bless, wagtail. My mother was already undressing the little darling, and her maid was gone to fetch her night things. Tumbled hither and thither she did not wake, but was carried off stone-sleeping to her crib. Then my father, for whom some supper, of which he was in great need, had been brought— as soon as he had had a glass of wine and a mouthful or two of cold chicken began to tell us the whole story End of chapter nine